The definition of the word create goes something like this. To cause to come into being as something unique that would not normally evolve or that is not made by ordinary processes. To evolve from one's own thought or imagination as a work of art or an invention. To do something creative or constructive. The world has kind of twisted what it means to be a creator. Most of us are quick to pinpoint visual artists, musicians, authors. Well, sure, those people create art, but all of us are creating. You might be a creator without even realizing it. Did you post something hilarious on Twitter? You created laughter. Do you work on user interfaces? Guess what? You're creating an experience. Did you put a ton of thought into decorating your apartment? You're creating a mood, a welcoming environment. Did you cook a homemade meal for your family last weekend? You created something, well, fulfilling from lesser ingredients, and you probably created a little slice of happiness. Maybe this sounds dramatic. After all, I'm a writer. But look, recently, a prominent developer in the Linux community said that creating a new Linux distribution and sharing it with the wider world was selfish that there are enough distributions already, and chances are you're probably not contributing anything to the ecosystem that's new or fresh. Well, even if that's true, so what? Don't let anyone stifle your creativity. Don't let any force around you suggest that the creative spirit that's instilled in all of us isn't valuable or worth pursuing or worth sharing with everyone. When I was growing up, Someone very close to me tried to convince me that I shouldn't pursue writing, that I shouldn't be a dreamer, I should be practical. I'm pretty happy that I let that poor advice bounce right off of me. Go make stuff. Go share it with as many people as possible. You might change someone's mind about something. You might change a life. You might just make someone smile for a second. Or you might inspire someone else to develop their own unique twist on your idea. So as you're going about your daily life, think about what you're creating in the process, because creating stuff is what this show is all about. This is Linux for Everyone, Episode 3. Welcome home. Welcome to Linux for Everyone, a podcast about desktop Linux, open source software, and the community creating it. My name's Jason Evangelo, and I write stuff about computers and gaming and Linux over at Forbes, and I like you whether you use Emacs or Vim. So coming up on episode three, a lot to talk about, a lot to discover, and uh, quite a bit of housekeeping as well, because there is a lot of stuff going on around uh, the show, which is incredible. So I'm going to share that with you in a little bit. And then we're also going to get into the community voice, talking about Manjaro's recent decision to introduce free office into the installer. 
and uh, we'll get some reactions from the community and talk about that a little bit and a, a lot of the developments that have come from that within the last 48 hours as I'm recording this. And at the end of the show, I'll be speaking to the main dude over at Bearded Giant Games. He is an indie game developer who has something called a Linux First Initiative, which seems like a bit of a rarity in the Linux gaming world. So I'm going to jump on the microphone with him. But first, let's get into our weekly discovery. On episode two, during my chat with Connor Murphy, we were talking about Endeavor OS and Arch and Pac-Man and some of my personal frustrations with using the Arch Package Manager. Well, after that episode, a really cool guy who you may know in the community, his name is Neil Gompa. And Neil, I hope I pronounced your last name correctly. Uh, Anyway, Neil is a developer at Fedora and OpenSUSE. And he threw a really cool link at me. It is mankier.com, M-A-N-K-I-E-R. And the goal of this site is super simple. Mankier tries to make reading and man pages, which stands for manual, as convenient as possible. You just go there, search for command, and then you will get a detailed description of what that is, some uh, various examples of how to use it, and also an explanation of what that command is doing so that you can kind of learn as you go. It is very comprehensive. Uh, For example, if I type in pacman-s, you'll see that it stands for sync, and you'll get a three or four paragraph explanation as well as um, various flags that you can use with that. It's really wonderful. It's very clean looking. It's laid out smartly. If you want to start increasing your command line knowledge, this is just an awesome resource. It's M-A-N-K-I-E-R dot com. Thank you again to Neil for putting that on our radar. Okay, before we keep going, give me just a couple minutes of your time to get some housekeeping out of the way, because a lot has happened between episode two and episode three. It's been kind of insane. First up is Patreon. I have decided to launch a Patreon to try to uh, offset the cost of the show and, honestly, to try and make a bit of money doing the show because it is time-consuming and it's something that I want to put even more of my effort into, if possible. More content, more segments, um, more guests, just as much as possible. So, the Patreon, you can get on board for just a dollar and that makes you an associate producer. And so, you'll get a credit on the Linux for Everyone website, as well as a special badge on our brand new Discord server, which identifies you as an associate producer. And then there are other tiers as well. Uh, A $4 tier gets you Linux for Everyone a day earlier, and it also gets you the show in 320k instead of 128k mp3. And there's more there as well, but the most important thing is this. If you're not a patron you're still getting the entire show. I'm not going to edit out chunks of the show and say, hey, patrons, you get the real show. The real show is free. And the Patreon is basically a way of supporting what I'm doing and getting a few little bonuses here and there. But it will not take away from 
the podcast itself, which goes out to the entire world. I really don't believe in doing that. So if you're interested in the Patreon, you can click through at linuxforeveryone.fireside.fm, or you can just search for Linux for Everyone on patreon.com. And next up, as I mentioned, the Discord server. I wanted to open up this community beyond just listeners of the show, because it has blossomed into, honestly, one of the friendliest, most helpful, generous, uh, just amazing Linux communities that I've been involved in, and a lot of other people on Telegram have said that as well. And I wanted to create that same kind of friendly community, but for Linux users in general. So this is not something where you know you have to listen to the show to be involved. Not at all. Uh, you can talk about Linux gaming. You can talk about music. You can you know share some Linux porn if you want to. Some screenshots. We even have a help desk where a lot of the members that are already there, a lot of experienced people too, can hopefully give you some help if you're having issues with a new distro or or whatever. And of course, there are also voice channels. And uh, that's something where you can just hop into the mix at any time and chat with other members of the community, maybe organize a game night, something like that. The, the sky is kind of the limit. So you'll find the invite link to the Linux for Everyone Discord server over at the show notes, which is at, you guessed it, linuxforeveryone.fireside.fm. And one more thing, social media. You can find Linux for Everyone at Telegram, Facebook, and Twitter. And all three of those are Linux, the number four, everyone. That's Linux, the number four, everyone. Speaking on behalf of the entire community, we hope to see you in at least one of those places because it really is a blast. Okay, gang, thank you for giving me a few minutes to get that housekeeping stuff out of the way. Let's jump into Community Voice. This is a recurring segment where I solicit your feedback about something that's trending or something that has happened in the Linux community. From time to time, I'll ask you for your opinion about something that's been happening, and I will put the word out on Twitter, on Discord, on Telegram, and on Facebook. Getting that audio to me is really simple. You can email the show, Linux for Everyone at pm.me. And if you're on Telegram, it's really simple to just pop a voice message into my inbox. So keep an eye out on social media for future topics. This topic is one that moved really, really quickly, and that is Manjaro's decision to replace LibreOffice with FreeOffice. Originally, this announcement was made very quietly and somewhat vaguely, on the Manjaro forum, simply saying that they would ship SoftMaker's FreeOffice by default. And LibreOffice has always been the one that ships. It's a kind of the de facto, like default open source office suite for many, many Linux distributions out there. And within about 48 hours, we heard one of the lead developers for Manjaro appear on Linux Unplugged talking about the rationale behind their decision. And also, and, and I think this is a crucial thing to point out, that no money has exchanged hands between Manjaro and between SoftMaker. And a few days after that, Manjaro then backtracked and said, hey, we're going to give you a choice. So for Manjaro 18.1, the installer will ask you, do you want LibreOffice? Do you want FreeOffice? Or do you want none? 
And I think that's a real win-win. And so when I gathered this community feedback, that had not happened quite yet, but it did bring up a larger discussion about proprietary software versus free and open source software. Here is some feedback from the Linux for Everyone community. I have no problem with the proprietary stuff. I use WPS Office as my primary office suite. Um, what I have a problem with is they didn't do a great job of communication. This seems to be an ongoing thing with a lot of Linux projects, though. Um, if you're going to do stuff, let your u- current user base know. If you are looking to grow, that is totally understandable. But on the same note, you have to communicate with the people who helped get your project to where they're at. Thank you, Dark One LTG. Appreciate you sending that in. And it's a fair comment. But at the same time, we don't know what the master plan was. We don't know what the lead developers at Manjaro had mapped out for making this a reality. Maybe it was just something that they would put into the next one or two release candidates of Manjaro 18.1 to get feedback and perhaps improve the product. Maybe they thought that simply announcing it quietly on the forum would be fine. Whatever the case, to their credit, I really do appreciate how they took the community feedback, which was at the time largely negative, and they acted on it. They wrote blog posts. They clarified things in the forum. They clarified things on Twitter. Other podcasts and YouTubers that have discussed it, they have been sharing those discussions on their social media. So I really give them a lot of credit for that. All right, let's move on and hear from Clayton. In regards to Manjaro switching from LibreOffice to FreeOffice, I'm not particularly bothered about the fact that it's proprietary software or even the fact that they're moving away from LibreOffice. What concerns me is that there wasn't a very clear message about why they were making this change and how it was supposed to positively impact their user base. From what I gathered, it seemed purely to do with monetary benefit. Um, even if they're not getting paid right now, I can't imagine there's any reason to just, you know, to, to just include this software without getting some kind of payback in return, if that makes sense. But if they're not receiving payments for it now, I'm assuming that it'll either come at a later date or perhaps it's purely promotional. Either way, there's some kind of transaction taking place. I am more concerned about the fact that I have not seen any interest from Manjaro users regarding this change in a positive light, and I've not really seen the desire to move away from LibreOffice, nor do I see any technical reasons to move towards something like FreeOffice. So my primary concern is that this just goes against what Manjaro has always done, and there's no solid reasoning as to moving forward. So here is the other side of that argument sent in by Benjamin in Brazil. Hey Jason, it's Benjamin here. Well, about the free off, the free office controversy. Uh, I work for the military here in Brazil for a couple of years. And we have a custom Linux distribution based on Debian. It's basically Debian with a custom package above it. And we are distancing ourselves from LibreOffice for for a couple of years already. Uh, Right now we are using WPS. And the basic 
motivation is the compatibility with the Microsoft Office files. So LibreOffice is a great tool with great compatibility, but uh, for you to generate, to write your own documents, it's okay, it's perfect. But when you need to open uh, Microsoft Office files, uh, the compatibility of LibreOffice isn't that perfect. And we don't live in a bubble. We need to change documents all the time with a lot of companies. So the compatibility is more important for us a nice interface or an open source code, things like that. I think that for the Linux on the desktop, we need a, a, a great Office tool, but the most important thing is the compatibility with the Microsoft Office that if SoftMaker Free Office has a better compatibility with a better interface, a ribbon interface, I think it is better for the Linux des desktop in general and a great incentive for LibreOffice to improve. I think that in the end, we all win. Now, something very interesting has emerged from this partnership between SoftMaker and Manjaro. As Benjamin pointed out, there was that compatibility issue where if you want to actually save to certain um, Microsoft Office formats, he preferred FreeOffice. Interestingly, up until this point, the ability to save to .doc, .xls, .ppt in FreeOffice was a paid feature. And since announcing the partnership with Manjaro, they're now adding that ability to their free version. So that's something to consider when you're weighing this, this entire situation. Manjaro was already not like a free software distro, so it's not a huge deal in my opinion. Like there's also, there's Parabola, which I think I mentioned in the uh, Linux for Everyone chat a little earlier. And if you haven't heard of Parabola, it's basically the exact same thing as Arch Linux, but everything is free software. They don't include any of the blobs, which means it's less likely to run on your computer. But if it runs, then great, you have free software. Personally, I would be one to lean more into the free software side of things. And for that reason, I'm not a huge fan of Manjaro going with a proprietary office suite, but it's not the end of the world. Uh, it's just a little disappointing to see more proprietary software included by default. And as we know, of course, it won't be included by default. Users will definitely have a choice when they install Manjaro 18.1, which is awesome. But this comment opens the door to probably a deeper discussion we should be having constantly as a community. We don't have to agree on it, but we have to talk about it. And that is, is proprietary software on Linux a bad thing? Or is it a necessary step to attracting more users to the ecosystem, more Windows users, more Mac OS users? I lean toward it being a necessary step. At the end of the show, you're going to hear from a musician who made the switch to Linux because the uh, digital audio workstation Bitwig created a Linux version. Now, that's proprietary commercial software, but it allowed him to transition to a Linux workstation for everything that he does. And I think that when that happens, 
those users are going to be more exposed to the ideas of freedom and open source. And they're going to see a lot more of those open source pieces of software and that community and those developers. So I think in the end, it's something that we need to not personally embrace, but allow to happen and and definitely not berate people who make that choice. And finally, I would say, if you're not satisfied with the open source software that you're using, reach out to the developers and ask them if they need help. Could they use donations? Could they use suggestions? Could they use marketing? There is so much that we can do, even if we don't write a single line of code, to improve our favorite software and make them more competitive with the proprietary commercial software that's out there. So that's my stance on this situation. And I want to thank everyone who sent in comments to be played on the show. I hope you guys enjoyed the variety of feedback that was presented here. Let's think of something for the next Community Voice. And here is a potentially tricky question. Would you still use Linux if you had to pay for the distribution? Fire off your thoughts in audio format to Linux for everyone at pm.me. And now it's time for another installment of the Linux Gaming Report. Before we get into my discussion with the head honcho over at Bearded Giant Games, I wanted to let you know the feedback for Liam's segment from Gaming on Linux in Episode 2 was super positive, and I'm thrilled to tell you guys that he will be back once per month for that exact type of segment. So I hope you look forward to that. Okay, have you ever wondered what it takes, what goes into being a one-man indie game development studio? Have you ever wondered how many sales you have to have to make a living? Have you ever wondered what does QA look like? What does the interaction with the community look like? I was fortunate enough to get all of those answers from Zappa, the big boss over at Bearded Giant Games. Here is our chat. Sit back and enjoy. Zappa, thank you so much for coming on to the show and chatting with us for a little bit. Tell us a little bit about your game studio and what you've been working on recently. So I'm a one-man development studio. I work in what I call the workshop. It's full of 3D printing and Arduinos and electronics and the small, tiny, tiny computer or gigabyte bricks that I've been developing on for the past, I don't know, five or six years. And I also have two cats that run around the studio and make a mess out of everything. So you're doing all of your game development on a gigabyte bricks? Yeah, everything since 2014. The first thing I'd love to hear about is your Linux origin story. Like, Where did you get your start in Linux and... And what caused that? Uh, I think it was 2006. Uh, Ubuntu was shipping their Ubuntu CDs, you know, in a cover with Ubuntu 604 on it. And I had this guy at school uh, and he came over to me. He's like, yo, want to buy an original Windows? It's going to call. It's gonna cost you like two bucks. It's an original operating system. And I was like, yeah, which Windows is it? Windows Ubuntu. I'm like, yeah, screw it. Yeah, hey, I have <laughs> the original. Yeah, back in the 90s, everyone in Romania, especially, they, we were pirating everything. That's Windows, that's a lot of things. And I, I I, have a small problem with doing that, 
But then again, being, I don't know, what was it back then, 12 years old, 13 years old, I can't remember. I, I couldn't afford to buy an original Windows license. So I got the CD from the guy. It was it looked original. It was one of the CDs <laughs> that Ubuntu was shipping at home. I brought it home. I installed it. I was like, huh, looks better than Windows XP. And then I couldn't play anything on it. <laughs> oh, man. But no one, no one in my classroom knew what Ubuntu was or how to use it. And it brought me back to the uh, VHS tapes that I had at home that my father used to buy every time he went abroad uh, with the Commodore and Sinclair. And I felt special, you know? And it's like, hey, I got like my own computer that nobody knows how to use now. Okay, this is awesome. I want to learn about it. I want to do some more things. And I kind of fell in love with Linux since then. And I was been mostly on Linux since 2006. So that brings me around to the reason I wanted to get you on this show. Um, I heard about your games and your studio a couple months back, and I stumbled across something called the Linux First Initiative. What What is that exactly? Well, the easiest way to describe it is just me throwing the hissy fit that I'm not living in the 80s, where uh, people got <laughs> Commodores and Sinclairs and they have their own platform. They just want to support a single platform and just focus on it to make the best that they can out of it. The actual like reason that I described in the initiative itself is like I, I, I just want to stay on Linux and I, w- I want to stay in my corner of the world and just make games for it. And uh, it's easier this way because I don't have to go supporting all these platforms and separate different bugs depending on operating system version and driver version and computer type and platform and things like this. So it's technically the Linux First Initiative is my way of making my life easier while working on the games that I like to work on the platform that I like the best. So is it fair to say that you took this approach mainly as as personal preference and a, and a bit of a sanity measure than a financial decision? Yeah, I think that's encapsulated the best. Like, a, Although, to be fair... I'm not sure it's going to be, it's also a bad financial decision, all things considered, especially with this uh, newest game launch. Yeah, tell us about that. It's called Space Mercs, right? Yes. So, uh, uh, you're going to start with the beginning. Like three months ago, I technically got rid of my biggest playing clients because I wasn't okay with what they were asking me to do for a game that I was working on. Then I got left with like a enough budget to make a game in three months. And the way, because I, I'm not a huge graphical gamer, like I game most of my things either on uh, portable consoles like the DS or the PlayStation 4, and my computers are just not powerful enough. They're all on integrated graphics. And I saw people, they kept playing Elite Dangerous, something that I haven't been able to play since w- when it launched. And I really wanted a space game with like a ton of ships that would work on my hardware. Uh, so I said, hey, like, I, I got to make a game in three months before I got to find a new client or get a job. So why not just make the biggest space game I can make for myself and hopefully put it out there and hopefully it's going to sell a couple hundred copies. So how's it doing? At the time this show goes out, I believe it launched about five days ago on Friday. It's uh, doing pretty well. It's exactly my expectation. I was uh, I was aiming for 700 copies sold at the end of the week or a week later since I put it up on sale. Right now it's sitting at 260 copies sold. And Linux, being my uh, my pride and joy at this point, is at 100 copies sold. So a bit over 30% of the sales are coming from Linux, which is not something you usually hear in the development community. So I'm extremely proud and happy with the way the game's going right now. What do you attribute that to? Because I, I frequently read GamingOnLinux.com and... 
the numbers I normally see that Linux Windows split, I mean, it's normally zero point something percent or two percent or three percent of share on Linux, and you're talking forty something percent. Uh, in my opinion, there are two things that most developers that are targeting Linux are doing wrong. Uh, and they're pretty, basically the same thing, but you're going to see them once. So one of them is like somebody's making a game and they want to release it. They know about Linux and like, okay, I'll just hit export in Unity and just do a build for Linux and that's it. And they do no QA. People are going to buy it. It's going to be horrible. The, they're going to ask for refunds and the original developer is just going to be like, yeah, it's not worth supporting Linux because we got 1% sales and I don't know, 20 sales of the game and uh, 10 chargebacks. And the second one is uh, people are actually, they, they want to do Linux. They install Linux on one of their computers. They do proper QA on it. They work on it, but they do not interact with the Linux community. They don't talk to them. Most of their posts are uh, towards Windows users. Let's let's go for them. Uh, their articles, their their demo versions, everything is based around the Windows community. They might send Lion at Gaming on Linux a review copy and, hey, like the game's launching on Linux, but that's it. And then they're disappointed that they really get no sales because they're not doing any marketing or they're not engaging the actual Linux community. And we're at a point in time where they're like, well, what, 4,000, 5,000 actual games on Linux on Steam. People already have a lot of things to choose and pick. So they're not going to go for yours unless they get something of value out of it. And that could be like you actually taking an interest in Linux, you actually trying to make engage with them, things like this. And I think this is the reason why most people, and I'm not talking AAA game studios, okay? I'm, I'm, tra- I'm talking my level of uh, small indie developers. This is why they're not seeing sales above 5%. Like in my case, I've been on the Gaming on Linux Discord and on their forums and commenting and talking. I've released articles regarding Linux game development, who's doing game porting. Uh, I don't know, shout outs to other developers doing it. Like I, I've been supporting Linux as a community, not as like, uh, hey guys, buy my game kind of thing, you know? And it actually, it paid off and it's doing amazing. And the amount of support I'm getting from the Linux community is like, wow, like, I'm extremely close to being able to just doing Linux, <laughs> that's it, and stuff like that, which would be the, the, the biggest dream I have. I've always thought that the amount of effort you invest in something, you see that returned in some way. And so hanging out with the Linux community and being a, a staple in the community instead of just, I guess, treating them as a, a low sales number, you know, and treating them as actual people and gamers who who appreciate the approach that you have and, and your games and your conversations, that's clearly the right approach. I wanted to jump back for a second, actually, and ask you about QA. I mean, you're you're just one guy, right? Mm-hmm. So how, what does that process look like? That's not something I've ever really had a good view into, I guess. You know, you, you've created your game, you're testing it, you're approaching the release date, do you test on different distributions, different hardware? What What is involved there? So uh, in Spacemarks' case, I do the entire development on Linux. I usually test on Windows when we're getting close to release, but the key, the key point here is that since I'm doing development on Linux, all the middleware that I'm using, pretty much everything that I'm using and it's not written by myself or it's purchased for a reason like control or input and things like this, it's a hundred percent guaranteed to work on Windows because it's not using DirectX, it's not using anything that's Windows specific. It usually cross cross platform stuff. 
So that shaves off a lot of the problems you might encounter when you're, when you're doing Windows builds. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, I, there was a developer a few months ago that couldn't release his Linux build of the game because of a third party voice chat, uh, software that he was using. And he found out that that's not supported on Linux or it's not working anymore with the recent kernel changes. So he actually had to drop Linux. If he were to have been working on the game on Linux itself using a voice chat thingy that was cross-platform developed and it worked on Linux, it's guaranteed to work on Windows. So that helps with QA tremendously. Uh, normally my process is I, like, I, I work constantly on the game. So like, let's say 12, 16 hours a day. Every feature that I think I finished implementing, I put a code freeze on the game. I do a backup on my server. I make the build. And I just sit there playing and taking notes on how it's performing. And when the game nearest release, I got my own Discord community that I'm extremely thankful for that has grew up quite a bit in the last three months. And there are people on various platforms, mostly Linux users, that I'm just going to send them a zip with the game. Like, hey, tell me, does it run on your machine? Does it run okay? Is it working like this? And like one of the biggest advantages of doing this on Linux and with Linux users, you don't have to micromanage anyone. Like if there's a problem that comes up, they know where to find the player log. <laughs> they usually know why it's happening and they're one of the, like the most technical users you could ever wish for. And as a programmer and designer, like that's a godsend. That's, that's a freaking blessing. <laughs> so you don't, that's, that's so cool. So you don't really feel the need to have to test on 20 different distributions or 15 different dedicated NVIDIA cards and 15 different dedicated Radeon cards and all different, uh, Intel integrated graphics solutions because you're using this very compatible cross platform middleware and you've got a community to help you test everything. Yeah, but there's also another reason, like, I just cannot afford having 15 different graphics cards and stuff. Like, I'm a single guy <laughs> and I got two computers. Uh, but mostly, like, what I do, and one of my lucky things is that like, I'm always on low-powered hardware. Technically, just by going by logic, if it works on one of the worst integrated GPUs on the market, it should work without a problem on one of the highest top-tier ones. Luckily for me, then this is where the community jumps in. And usually they're pretty well diversified. I got a couple of low-end users. And even the people that are having the same hardware as I do, they usually have separate desktop environments or a different Mesa version or different drivers. So it kind of works out in the end, but it doesn't work out perfectly. But it's it's something that you can probably quickly resolve and then just turn around and patch. Yeah, there is a workaround that I can do. And it's going to be at the cost of a small bit of performance. Like you're going to lose like 15, 20 FPS, but that's that, that's all. Well, that's not too bad, considering it's not a very demanding game at all, despite <laughs> the fact that it looks pretty good and it's pretty frantic. Yeah, that was the goal. Uh, when I started working on it, I was like, I want to play a space game, but I, I don't want to be a badass in a huge ship. Like, I just want to be the little guy that's in the middle of a war going like, screw it, what, what the hell am I going to do? Like, everybody's fighting everybody, and you got moments when you're just in the middle of it, and nobody's targeting you, and you feel so small and unimportant, and you see just lasers flying everywhere. Like, that, that was the experience I wanted to get with this game. Is what you're doing with Bearded Giant Games, is this a full-time job for you? Well, it looks like it's going to become a full-time job. Uh... Normally, like if you refer to it as a full-time job, just making games under the Beauty Giant brand and my own games and not for client work, not yet. But at the rate the game's going right now, I'm probably going to be able to not have to search for a job for the next six months if it's going to hit my targets at the end of the week. 
That's really, I mean, that's really fantastic because if you look at the majority of what comes out of the gaming press and, you know, judging success by millions of numbers, right? And you're talking about a few hundred being able to sustain you for six months. That's incredible. That's the benefit of being able to survive in Eastern Europe. We got low rent and we're making games for the United States. God bless all of them. (laughs) (laughs) Eastern Europe is pretty cool. You know, something else I wanted to talk to you about is Steam itself. Is it hard as an indie developer to separate yourself from the pack to stand out in, you know, amongst the hundreds and thousands of games that release every month? How do you do that? I just don't. Like, I really don't. There's no way I can grab Steam's attention with the types of games that I'm making and with my budget and my reach. What I can do, on the other hand, is focus on pre-release metrics like wishlist. This is what I did for Space Marks. I just try to speak with the people that would be interested in my game, get them, like at some time actually hunt them, like plead with them to add it to their wishlist and just hope it's going to be enough and it's going to work out because I, I can't get Steam's attention. Have you thought about any other uh, platforms like itch.io or even Epic Games, anything like that? Uh, well, the, 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 I, I want to release on itch.io. It's one of my favorite platforms. I've been on them since the beginning and it's my favorite one to this date. The biggest problem with releasing on Steam is like on Steam, you're going to make the most money and this is due to how the algorithm works. The more sales you have on Steam, the more visibility you're going to get. And if I were to release on HIO the same time with Steam, I'm just going to cannibalize some of my sales on Steam. And my community knows that. Like, I, I made it aware to them, even on uh, Gaming on Linux. Uh, I think I told Liam to mention that, and I mentioned it in the comments. Once the first week on Steam goes away, which is when you're, I'm going to make the most sales, I'm just going to go back on itch and be like, hey, guys, it's available for download on itch. And just to be safe and sure people are not going to hate me because I went Steam exclusive for like a week. I All the copies sold on Steam are DRM-free. So there's nothing stopping you from buying it on Steam, copying it from there, putting it on our machine or archiving it for yourself. Oh, that's so nice. Thank you so much. <laughs> on, on behalf of gamers everywhere, thank you for that. What are your thoughts on selling your games directly on different Linux distributions and... I want to call out specifically elementary OS here because they have their own app center with indie developers who are creating apps just for elementary OS. And it's kind of a, a pay what you want model. Well, it's actually something that I plan on doing. I have a, I had a talk with Adam Pope at some point uh, about releasing the game on the Snapcraft store. And it's going to be on the shareware model. Like you get the game, you download it, you get a free four levels to play for free, and then you got to purchase the code externally. And once you enter that code in, you're going to have everything unlocked pretty much. And they would do the same with elementary OS and all the other small stores for each distribution. The problem is I, it takes time in order to assure that the game's running fine on that distribution. So if by chance I'm going to have, I don't know, 20, 30 people who purchased the game and played it on elementary OS and they, they give me the green light, like, hey, everything's fine. It's working perfectly. There are no missing libraries. There are no problems with it. Oh, that just saved me QA. Okay. Hi, elementary. I'm uploading my game. Get right here. <laughs> it's fine. In our, in our Telegram and Discord group, there's at least 20 people just there that are on elementary OS. So maybe, you know, if that's something you consider, maybe we can help spread the word a little bit. 
Cool. That'd be awesome. Hey, if they want to help me out with QA on Elementary OS, I'm literally just going to throw keys at them. <laughs> Before I let you get out of here, tell the audience where they can find you, where they can find your games. Just, just do a whole lot of pimping of yourself right now. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. I am the Bearded Giants. I make games. Most of them are open source and DRM-free. You can find them at beardedgiant.games. And you can find my latest game on steam.com by searching for Spacemarks. You're going to like it. It's been developed on Linux, like most of my things. Did you rehearse that? Nope. That was nice. <laughs> that was really nice for just spur of the moment. Well done. Thank you. Well done. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's been awesome talking to you. And thank you for giving us, a, I think, um, some insight that we don't normally see a kind of a glimpse into, you know, the, the mind and the life of a, an indie game developer who's focusing mostly on Linux, which I think is fantastic. And I wish you the best of luck going forward. Hey, thank you for having me here. And thanks for supporting me and my games. I know you retweeted the games and you did my things. Thanks. Well, as always, I'm going to take you guys out with songs from the source. And I really appreciate all the feedback you've had for this uh, little segment. It's something I plan to keep doing and hopefully keep improving. And I think the coolest part is that whenever possible, we get to hear directly from the musician. And that just really makes my day. It's fitting, though, that with this conversation about proprietary versus open source free software, that I introduce a little twist and kind of turn songs from the source on its head. Because this next artist uses commercial software. And you know what? I think that's okay. Because it allowed him to bring all of his activities finally to a Linux workstation. The artist is Atrocity. The track is Outpost 10.3. And I will let him introduce it. But before I say goodbye... I want to give a shout out to the show's very first patrons, Anthony, Big Daddy Linux, Haplo, James, Jan, Lee, Matthew, Patrick, Robert, Tim, Tuscan, and Zebediah Boss. I'll see you guys for episode four. In the meantime, take care and take care of each other. Hi, I'm Atroxity, and I run Linux on my workstation in the studio. So uh, all the music that you find on my artist profile on Spotify and Apple Music and so forth are created and uh, mixed and mastered on a Linux workstation. And on Linux, I uh, run Bitwig as my uh, DAW of choice. And it really was the release of Bitwig that made a turning point for me in regards to uh, go fully Linux also in the studio. I haven't really missed anything in order to make uh, my music at least. So there you have it. Linux, Bitwig and Yuhi, basically. That's the stack in my studio. And um, here's one of those tracks that I've made using that stack. And that's Outpost 10.3. Thank you.
Before I let you go, <clears throat> before I let <laughs> that he will be back once a month for that exactly. <laughs> God.